Coming up on this episode, author Phil Stamper is here to talk about his new YA novel, Afterglow. Welcome to episode 414 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of queer romance fiction. I'm Will, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Jeff. Hello, Rainbow Romance Reader. It is great to have you here for another episode of the show. As always, this podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. And we'd like to thank Pam for recently joining the community. If you'd like more information about what we offer to patrons, including a monthly bonus episode, go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. Happy Valentine's Day to my husband. Right back at you, babe. (laughs) (laughs) However you are spending your Valentine's week, we hope it is packed with some extremely good books. I have to say, I read one of your extremely favorite books from last year. I finally read Golden Boys in my preparation to talk to Phil. I can see so much why that book was on top of your list for the year. It was so absolutely wonderful. Those boys, I tell you, they had an amazing summer in some very different ways. (laughs) I don't lie. No, you don't. (laughs) further proof, everyone should always listen to everything I say. He is not wrong about that. (laughs) Because, yeah, if you have not picked up Golden Boys, grab that. Get ready for Afterglow. I'm so happy we had Phil on the show to talk about the books that we loved so much last year. We have some great discussions about how he came up with the Golden Boys, Gabe, Heath, Sal, and Reese, and the challenges in writing books with four main characters. Literally, as I was reading Golden Boys, it kind of made my writer brain itch, like how on earth would I deal with four main characters and all of their friends and everybody else? So it's a really fascinating part of the conversation. So let's get into this and find out about the story of these guys. Phil, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It is wonderful to have you here. Hi, thank you for having me. So before we get into the books, we have to congratulate you. Since it was just this past (laughs) holiday season, you became a father. Yes. awesome. How is fatherhood treating you? (laughs) It's, I mean, it is, oh God, it is so challenging and so bizarre and so like it feels like i'm I, like it still hasn't really sunk in totally that i'm a father which is like cliche i think to say but it, it just really is it's just it's bizarre like you know one day you know you're you're living like a completely like normal life especially because you know my, my husband and i n- neither of us were pregnant we'll just say that so it's not like i had that visual reminder every second of every day in my life and so it was just like all of a sudden it was time to go to the hospital and we we're like oh wow it was really starting to set in and then from then on it's really just like you have to it's just one thing after another you have to like survive and keep this baby alive and like do well and then all of a sudden they're like giggling and smiling at you and laughing and like so that's the phase we're in now and it's just like oh wow you're starting to be like a real human so it's already been such a bizarrely rewarding experience that like i can't put down into words but it is uh it's been an interesting break from the grind that i've had (laughs) i want to say like i've I have written now, uh, written six books in a row, and I was really close to burnout. And I think also the baby came at a perfect time for me because I was like, I need a full reset. I need, I, I'm so worn out. I'm so burnt out from the pandemic and everything. And like we had really wanted to start a family, and so it all just kind of worked out at the right time. And I was like, okay, like going full in on this. And then now I'm, now I'm trying to figure out how to balance everything. But that's you know that's what you have to do as a parent. So. 
Yeah, because you mentioned before we started, you, you've got a book getting ready to come out. You've got a child to take care of and you work an, a whole other job. <laughs> yep, exactly. And so being on a two book a year schedule with a full-time job was already impossible. But then balancing that on top of having a baby and like dealing with childcare and you know, figuring all this stuff out, it's been it's been wild, but I've I, I you know, I'm I'm setting boundaries. I'm I'm getting pretty good at figuring my life out. So you know, if this might change in a week. You know, right now we're recording this a week before after it goes on sale. Plenty of time for me to lose my mind in the lead up to that. Well, I loved your picture with your husband and and the baby in front of the Christmas tree that came out. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah, that was such a fun fun photo shoot. I love I love the holidays. So that was also very special to me to share that with her, who was just like, she's obsessed with lights. So that was oh, also perfect. fun. Yeah, it was a perfect age because she just <laughs> stared at the Christmas tree all the time, like me. So <laughs> we bonded over that. Listeners of the show know that Golden Boys was one of Will's very favorite books of 2022. I have since caught up to the wonder that is Golden Boys. For those who haven't picked up that first book yet, Tell them a little bit about where we first meet Gabe, Heath, Reese, and Sal, and that journey that sure. they take. Yeah. So for the for anyone in the millennial generation that's listening, I'm just going to say it's kind of a queer sisterhood of the traveling pants. Like th- that's the vibes that I was going for when I wrote this, and so that might be enough for you to just pause the podcast, buy it, and then come back. <laughs> uh, but for people you know, in other generations, essentially it's a YA friendship story between four different queer boys, golden boys, as they were, that they all live in rural Ohio, but they all have very interesting and different summer plans. So one character is helping his aunt run her boardwalk arcade in Daytona Beach. One is in Paris for design school. One is in DC working with a senator. And another one is working with a Save the Trees kind of foundation in Boston. So they're in four completely different cities and they're best friends for their entire lives. So the question kind of becomes, how do we how do we stay in touch when we're trying to live what should be our future lives? Like we're we're getting a taste of the future of what real life is going to be all about. And we're already having trouble keeping the group chat alive. Like, what does that mean for our friendship? And then the question also remains, what happens when they come back and they're kind of different people because they've all had these life-changing experiences in the summer. And that's where Afterglow actually picks up. So the summer is Golden Boys. And then after the summer is when Afterglow starts. Where did the four characters come from for you as you were trying to piece together who these guys were? Yeah, I I spent a lot of time thinking about the characters because I knew I was going to have four queer boys as characters and I knew right away that was going to be kind of challenging for people to to read through and like really understand, oh, Gabe is this one, you know, Sal is in DC. You know, like it takes you a while, I think, to orient who is who with any book. But when the characters themselves are kind of similar, you know, they're all they're all boys. They're all they're all queer. Like you so they are very different people, but I understand how early on it could be really confusing. And so one way that I did that was I just did a lot of kind of character study type work and tried to figure out who each one was, how they respond in a situation, how they would react to a certain situation, and also what their friendship is like with 
each other separately and also collectively. And so there's, you know, Gabe and Sal, they're kind of anchored together by their past hookup relationship, friends with benefits that they've been, you know, forever. And they're trying to kind of go from a lovers to friends angle. So that caused a lot of tension and helped me build their stories separately. And then at the same time, you have Heath and Reese, which are kind of a hopefully friends to lovers angle because they, um, they're all like, they're both quietly pining for each other. And this time I'm apart really solidifies how they feel about each other. And so putting all of those dynamics together, I was able to create like really distinct characters for it. And it's more than just saying like, oh, Heath plays baseball and, you know, Reese likes to do some sort of art like you know he's whatever like I I didn't just you know say like oh well these these are the things they like that's what makes them different I try to really get into what makes them tick what makes them afraid and I think the fear actually was the thing that I locked onto the most and you could quiz me right now and I don't think I would even remember what I said but I tried to think of you know kind of the mo- the biggest fears for each of these characters and like practical fears not like spiders which is a practical fear I have to say but more like what do they what would be the worst thing to happen to them? And so, for example, we'll say Gabriel, who is volunteering at the Save the Trees organization. I was like, he is a very anxious character. He is in therapy for his anxiety, but this is a really big change for him. And he's separated from Sal, who's kind of his security blanket as well. And so I then went with the question of what would be the worst thing to happen to him. And very soon into his program with the Save the Trees Boston Foundation, he is kind of sent on the streets to go canvas for donations. So if you've ever been in an environment in a city where people are trying to flag you down with their iPads or their clipboards trying to get you to donate to their cause, I was like, that would be my worst nightmare. That is Gabe's worst nightmare. And I think I'll put that in the book. So I I really focused on fear. So I think that's what sets us apart from people. Because if I had given that to any of the other characters, they would have dealt with it completely differently. But for Gabe's story at that time, like he needed that push, like he needed that literally to be shoved out of his his comfort zone to kind of find out who he wants to be. So that's just one example of kind of how I dug into each character separately and I love how you with the fear of it was like my worst, just like yours. Oh my God, like I, I could never do that. I mean, I feel, his story arc so just bad. made me itch a little bit. <laughs> I know I feel so bad too because it's like it's not like you don't care about the environment or you know you don't and you don't want to like completely disregard something, but they they're they're kind of everywhere when you work in cities, and so learning how to you know I, I don't know I, I just always I'm like if I was on the other side I would hate my life. And so it takes a very specific person. But I was like, well, what if somebody who isn't that typical, outgoing, effervescent person who can't just strike up a combo with a stranger on the street is forced to like, how is he going to flop? And then what happens after he flops? Does it get better? Or does he just recede? Because I feel like I would get the urge to just recede and quit and run away. But he doesn't he doesn't run away. We'll we'll save that. But you'll have to read to find out how he does. Yeah, (laughs) I was I was pleased that he did not recede because I don't think I could have done that either. As you were determining the fear, did that kind of line up to what the boys were going to go do for the summer? I mean, it sounds like it kind of did for 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 Gabriel in that instance to go to Boston for that thing. Yeah. I mean, in, in some ways, I, I think like coming to my Heath, one of his biggest fears is feeling like an outcast and feeling like the odd one out of the group. Like he is the, you know, of all the families, he is certainly on the lower income 
end of the of the spectrum and he feels that he's in a single parent household by the end of the book and he really like feels this kind of financial stress that the other boys don't see or they see it but they don't they don't experience it themselves so he already feels a little bit like an outsider in the group but then he's also going to Daytona Beach to help work his aunt's boardwalk arcade but that's kind of a front because his parents are in the process of this messy divorce and they wanted to kind of send him away somewhere so that they could sort everything out get it all separated so he can come back and then stay full time with his father and so the entire story of of Heath's life is like fear of isolation a feel a fear of being left out of you know even his family life and feeling like he's not connected to his family and so that was just taking him to Daytona and and removing him from the boys and giving him like putting him him in a place that isn't Paris or isn't it a huge city you know on the surface that could be a bad thing that could really play into his fears but then he also gets to really appreciate the family that he is visiting that he's never really been that close to and then also he gets to be at the beach which we realize is like actually pretty fun so like he gets to have a fun summer eventually, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, that's the kind of challenge. And I don't know the other two, I probably won't be able to remember off the top of my head, but it definitely informs who they are as people. It might not line up with the plot perfectly, but that's another example where I was like, well, what happens if Heath's the only one texting the group thread because everyone is too busy doing fun city things or, you know, something mm-hmm. like that, that would drive me mad. And so I wanted to throw that in there because I know how that would feel. How did you approach this from a writing angle? I mean, so many books, you've got mm-hmm. your primary character and there are some side friends. In this case, not only do you have four primary characters, but then you have all the side people that they know. So you you created a ginormous cast to balance in a yeah. book that's also not <laughs> epically long. <laughs> right. No, it's still like a solid 80, 85,000 words. Like it's not it's less than most YA fantasies uh, out there. And I wanted it to be accessible and smaller. And like, I didn't, it could have very easily ballooned out, but also do people want to read about these boys for that long? I guess they do. Cause I wrote a sequel, but in what, in one setting, probably not. And so I had to be strategic. It, this, I mean, honestly, like I went into this very naively, like I did not have any experience writing multiple POVs before this. You know, if you look at my, my other books, the Gravity Bus and As Far As It Take Me both have one main character. And then there is also, you know, a little world around them, but it's usually a tight circle. Like I like, I would prefer to always have fewer characters on the page, but we get to know more about them than to have a huge cast of characters where some of them have to be cardboard cutouts. And so I did not think this through when I started because I was like, oh, wow, because they're all going to like, it's not just the four of them leaving those four are going to then make friends. And then it's like, oh, but how does this even work? And so I had to plot this pretty rigidly. And, you know, I use what's called a beat sheet. I'm sure some people, some authors that you've had on probably use something similar. I just use a beat sheet for writing because it's very cinematic. It makes it, it, it speaks to how my brain works. I don't, I don't usually plot super rigidly when I'm writing, but I do like to have a, a very structured outline kind of like I, I I like you know like when you're doing a, a thousand piece puzzle you do the borders first I do the framework and then I kind of fill it in as I go but I try to hit all of the major plot points and beats and I try to think okay what's happening in each character storyline what's happening in the 
like romance storylines that kind of cross over with two of the characters, well, four of the characters, but two and two, and what's happening with the friends to lovers and the lovers to friends, what's happening with all four of them and their friendship, and then what's happening kind of in the world around them. And then also building onto that with side characters that could have their own stories as well. Could They could have a whole novel about them. What would that novel be about? How can I bring that in using as few words as possible, but like still being able to do that. So it, it became, I mean, like, I had to really limit myself to the amount of characters each main character interacted with. And so I think Reese is a good example where I really kept it close to mainly Reese's close friend, Philip, Philip with one L, so different than me, Philip with two L's. So in case anyone thinks I, I named someone after myself, I actually didn't. So Reese's friend, Philip, in, in France, he is kind of the only main character there that's not a, a professor at the school that he's going to and i try to keep it to like maximum three main side characters we'll say that main main side characters that i could focus on to give a story around and then you know also they all have parents so i have to talk about their parents and make sure they're not just like again cardboard cutouts of parents because you know if you've read any of my books you know that like i love complicated messy family dynamics and so we get a lot more of that in Afterglow because they're all back home. But there were some things I just had to leave off the page because I was like, you know what? We're not going to get to chat to their other friends from school here because they're all doing their own thing. Like, we don't have time. We don't have the, the amount of pages. No one has the attention span for that. And I was like, they'll be back in school and we'll get to them. And so that was kind of my path through that, which was extremely complicated. Like, one of seriously, the, like the hardest thing that I've done before having a child was writing this well writing the sequel was the hardest thing before that and then before that it was writing and editing the first one because for pov is it's it's hard because if you mess one thing up or if you want to tweak one thing that affects every single storyline so it's it was a challenge and i'm like so proud of these books now that they're out there and now that i've done them but it i would never want to go through that writing and editing experience again because it's so well i guess i'd never say never but you know I, I don't I don't know. It's just it was it was a challenge. We'll just say that. And <laughs> I'm glad that I pulled it off. And I think I I think I did 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 well enough. I did what I wanted to do. And that's all that I could be I could be super happy about that. Did you know from the beginning there would be a sequel? Or was it I like these boys so much I want to have a sequel? So I sold it to my publisher in a two book deal, but it was very clear that both the books would be part of this series. I talked to my editor a little bit about where, how exactly we wanted that, because for a while I was thinking, oh, well, it could be, you know, you have different ideas. Like I knew, I knew the story of the four boys going different places. I knew that I wanted that to be the core of the first book, but I didn't know if this, what the second book would be about. And so we had a lot of conversations kind of about the journey for the 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 four boys but my whole thing anchored to the fact that i felt really good about the idea of the golden boys and so at, at this point it was called the valedictorians and like my the pitch was more focused on the fact that all four of them were kind of fighting for the same valedictorian spot and so that was like a a theme that i started with when i was first originating the pitch and then I realized that that wasn't their main story. Their main story is their friendship. It wasn't about drama, about that. It was their relationships and their friendship. And at the same time, my my UK editor said, well, we don't use the word valedictorian here, so we can't have that title. And so that's when we ended up with Golden Boys. But, but yeah, essentially, from, from the very beginning, I knew I wanted both 
books. If I was investing so much into four characters, I'm not, I wasn't going to leave it at one. I wanted it to be a duology. I wanted it to be built in. And I love the idea of a contemporary queer YA duology. And I thought that was, that itself was like pretty special. And yeah, and I, and I don't think there's much like it out there. And I, and I can confidently say that, which is nice. You alluded to this, if I heard you right, that writing the sequel wasn't easier than writing the first one. <laughs> no. <laughs> Even though you'd done all the plotting <laughs> and knew how to work with these boys already, what about the sequel was more difficult? I think, yeah, oh God, it was, it was so challenging. I, I people always say that sequels are harder and I, I guess it's because you want to, you want to make a satisfying story. And so I didn't have, I couldn't just lean on the fact that Paris is pretty and Washington DC is like cool. Like, you know, I couldn't, you know, when in doubt, I sent Heath to the beach. Like I could, that could, that was my kind of my comfort zone. But what about when they're all in the same small rural village in Ohio? Like, how do I still make that story feel special? And so like, how do I accomplish everything when they're all on the same page all together? And, and that was, that was the biggest challenge. I, I was worried I wasn't going to be able to make it interesting enough because I think that that's, there was a novelty of the first book and that was the travel aspect of it. And so this, I was, I was kind of convinced that it was going to take me a while to get, you know, the right storylines. And then once I figured out what each character's main storyline was going to be, it was okay. However, it was just, it was, it was still so hard to write. I, I knew the characters. That one was not challenging. I could write I could draft and and actually like write Heath and then go to Reese and then go to Sal and I would have different voices in my head and that was great. That was the best part of it was the voices really did kind of flow freely from me in that case. But I think making sure that their characters' journeys still had merit after they'd already had this big transformative summer, that was important and I needed to do it well. And I think the pressure of that really kind of got to me, especially when I was planning it out. Now that we've done all this buildup on Afterglow, what can you tell us about senior year for these guys? Yeah. So, so yeah, it follows their entire senior year, basically picks up from where we left off, give or take a couple months. Will not give, take a couple months off that. And then it ends on graduation. So I knew I wanted it to follow that entire, which, you know, the whole theme of graduation, the, the cover, if you've seen the US cover, are four graduation caps, each one kind of styled in the way of a character. And so I knew that was the path that I wanted to take with Afterglow. But basically, it follows, it follows Heath and Reese specifically in their relationship, because spoiler alert, even though it's like pretty, pretty clear. From, from the outset that they're going to end up together at the end of book one. Book two, they have a lot more to deal with because they're both grappling with their futures. Heath is focused on his baseball career and trying to get into Vanderbilt, which has been his goal for his entire life, and to get a scholarship from Vanderbilt. So while Heath is focused on like baseball and his life, he's also experiencing, he's starting to experience a little bit of injury and pain and something is not right with his throwing arm. And as a pitcher, like that's a big red flag. However, if he's not performing at his best, how is he going to get the scholarship? So he's dealing with a lot of internal anguish there that he kind of keeps from Reese because he doesn't like to burden people. At the same time, Reese is kind of lost in the world. Like he went to Paris for Golden and during the Golden Boys story. And he kind of on a whim decided that he didn't want to do this graphic design program he had been sent there for. He actually wanted to do fashion design. And that was his passion. But he didn't know who he was designing these dresses for. And so eventually he kind of realizes 
some of these looks like I think I could rock them. And so he starts to kind of pursue being, you know, what, what is it, what does it mean to be a drag queen or drag performer? How can you get into that world? Like, how can you start, how could he start designing for himself? Like he knows now how to sew, like, how can he make that a part of his life? But that's also a huge thing to kind of just put out there because no longer are you just the gay kid? You're now the gay kid who is also a drag queen. And if you've ever seen Drag Race, we see these conversations a lot where it was like, you kind of have to come out twice if you are trying to pursue drag as a kind of a career, as part of your career. And though he doesn't want to do it as a career, he wants it more as a hobby. He is still thinks that's going to be a huge part of why he's going to study fashion in New York is that he wants to you know, design for queer people, design for himself. He wants to see where it goes. However, Vanderbilt and New York are in very different places, and that is looming over them the entire story. Meanwhile, we have Sal, who kind of comes back from Washington, D.C. jaded. He was kind of manipulated in his internship experience, and like he feels like it was... It wasn't a total failure. He got to see that world, but he's like, I don't think this is for me. And doubly, he's like, I don't think college is for me. I don't really want to waste my time getting a degree in something that like, something that I don't, it's not that he doesn't care about it. He just doesn't see how it's going to get him where he wants to go now that he has lived the dream over the summer and realized that dream is actually pretty crappy. So he doesn't want to work on the Hill anymore. And so he's like, maybe I'll get invested in local politics and I'll let you see where that takes him in the book. And then Gabriel is focused more in the school. And you know he's part of an LGBTQ resource club at the school that he ultimately, very timely, uncovers that some of the queer books and some of the diverse titles start slipping away from the bookshelves. And so he and a, a close friend start from the LGBTQ group start investigating it and seeing what they can find. And then at the same time, Sal and Gabe are always going to be reconciling their past relationship, what it meant. Gabriel is still in a long distance relationship from the Golden Boys era. I don't want to spoil too much for Golden Boys if you haven't read it, but he's in a long distance relationship. And so that comes with challenges too, especially when your comfort, your support system is right there where you used to have it. And so there's it's it's endlessly complicated, these these four little boys. <laughs> just they have so much going on. However, they, you know, ultimately it's about their friendship and they get to spend so much more time on the page with each other, which is really what I think makes this book so special compared to Golden Boys, whereas that was focused on the, you know, shiny cities and adventure. This is like, well, can't this be an adventure too? Now, this is premiering during Valentine's Week. And I'm curious to know, like, what kind of dates would the boys set up if they were doing Valentine's dates? That's such a great question. Uh, They're all so different. And actually, one of the fun things about Afterglow is that you get to see Heath and Reese in dating mode, which, like, you you didn't get to see in Golden Boys. So you actually do get to learn more about their dating kind of preferences and how they act and, you know, what they would set up. I think... I think Reese Reese sets up a really nice date in the book that I'm just going to say you have to read it to see it to to, it. to experience it. Heath, this is also mentioned in Afterglow, but Heath partially because you know he he doesn't come from much money, but also because he really does enjoy the like the like simple beautiful things about living in in the middle of nowhere Ohio. Like his idea of a date would be driving to like driving down a a, a road with 
you know, corn on each side where there's like no lights, no anything, rolling out a blanket and like having a picnic under the stars. Like he is such a romantic, but he also just really loves celebrating the kind of country vibe of his home and like knows how to celebrate that in a, in a healthy, non-toxic way, which, you know, it's, it's a little aspirational because that's, that's obviously, you know, that I did that kind of stuff in, in high school too, not, not as a date, but my friends and I would always do that. And it's, it's just a really special feeling to like, you know, be in the back of a pickup truck, looking up at the sky, no lights on anywhere around you. Like that's, that's something you would definitely do. So if it was in the summer, probably drive in movie and then a lot of outside time, a lot of outside time for Heath. We'll just say that because those activities are also free, which is, you know, a really big, big part of it too. Okay. So Gabe, Gabriel, I don't, I, I'm not positive with this one, but I feel like he would say that his ideal date would be like, they go to a protest and then hang out afterwards or something like they, you know, they like rally for whatever is happening. Like they drive down to Columbus, they like get all face painted, whatever they have to do, you know, wear all the stickers, whether, you know, grab all the signs, handwrite all the signs, you know, like he would be at the front of the Capitol at, in Columbus, like speaking out on something. And I think he would love to just, he would love to do that with someone. Like he would love to share that with someone who is equally passionate about that with him. So I think his, he would say it was a protest. I don't know if he would actually set it up. He, he's kind of more in his head all, most of the time. So I don't know if he'd ever actually do that, but I think he would enjoy that. And that leaves Sal. Sal, I don't really trust him to set up a date. He, he, is, he is very focused on his career, his, like, his life, like his goals, his ambitions. He's not the most overly affectionate on the page. And I think that, you know, and that's, that's important. He's just, he's, he's always had this kind of distance from his mother, even because she's, you know, had done some not super pro LGBTQ things, but she also, she's, she's a complicated character. Let's just say that. And so I feel like he just doesn't, he, he's not super sentimental like the rest of the boys are. And so I feel like he would just dress up and go to Olive Garden because that's kind of the fanciest option we have in the middle of nowhere, Ohio. Being born and raised there, I can, I can vouch for that. So I think he would absolutely do a an awkward first date at an Olive Garden or something. And yeah, I think that's that's where they'd all be. I totally picture all of that. <laughs> You've got a lot in your bio that says, his stories are packed with queer joy and his characters are often too ambitious for their own good. I think this duology embodies that completely. <laughs> How did this become your thing? I don't know. I, what's so weird is like, I, I mean, I guess you never really like, but maybe some authors intentionally are like, this is my niche. This is my voice. This is you know what I do. And of course, like I'm going to write similarly in all of my books. So like you're, if you like how I write in one book or how I characterize someone in one book, you might like that in the others. But for me, the themes that always jumped out and kind of jump out to me in my my experience as a teen were these goals of like ambition and what's coming next, which totally makes sense. Like when you're on the cusp of college or whatever happens after high school, you are always thinking what happens next. And so I, you know, starting with Gravity of Us, I had this, this he was, he was so ambitious, almost toxically ambitious, main character who like really had his whole life planned out. And I love 
the idea of flipping that on its head. And, you know, he is forced to move to Texas, even though he's living his dream life in Brooklyn and has his, you know, goals and everything. It's all set up. But I like questioning, I like having ambitious characters and then questioning whether their ambitions are placed correctly, if that makes sense, and then show them what the world is like outside of that so that they can actually use all of that energy towards what they actually want to do. And so that's what most of my character growth is about in, in most of my books. But obviously with the Golden Boys, just because, or just because the whole premise is that they're all doing these wonderful things, they're all thinking about the future. And when they come back, it's senior year. So they're all like, okay, well, what, what are we doing after this? And so I, I just, I love ambition as a theme. I like, I, you know, I, I've kind of moved past queer joy and into queer excellence. And I like, you know, with my middle grade novel that recently came out, Small Town Pride, that wasn't as focused on ambition, but it was focused a little bit on activism when a small town Ohio kid throws the, the town's very first Pride Festival. And so that was not necessarily a story of ambition, but a story of like, having big goals and finding the way to meet them. And so I feel like, I don't know, I get a lot of inspiration for that. I, I relate to that. And I think that even though it feels like I have sometimes pigeonholed myself into like these overly ambitious characters, I get to play around with it in ways that I never thought because each of these characters is ambitious in a different way. Like I can say that for all four of the golden boys and that I can also say that for my other books as well, they have different goals, priorities, but they would do anything to kind of meet those goals. And I, And I guess that just kind of is reflective of who I was as a teenager, who I am today still. I mean, like to to have a book published in the world, like you have to be pretty ambitious and pretty determined and like never give up. And it's, it's a lot of that. So I think I draw on that energy and I thrive in that, but also I can tell how kind of toxic that can be sometimes and how I like have led myself astray thinking I knew what I wanted. So I get to poke holes and in people's assumptions as I write that character, which is kind of fun. (laughs) queer joy giving way to queer excellence i think is a really great thing to put out there i mean Mm -hmm. you you look at it and how you weave some of the the activism and the standing up for yourself we see sal do with his mom in golden boys you talked about you know the what they're going to get into with the books disappearing from the library in in afterglow certainly small town pride seizes on that big time. That was one of my favorite books of 2022. I mean, it just, I read it as it came out. So I read it right in Pride Month. You know, all of the attacks on queer youth really stepped up last year and then, you know, continue right into this year. It was such a, a powerful story about a young man who was both skittish about being outed because, you know, you're being outed by a giant pride flag on your front yard. Because your dad is so, so proud of you and then really taking on the town and just, if your universe is ever crossover, can Sal just go be the mayor of that town? Oh my God. Yeah. That I think works. (laughs) That's absolutely the town that Sal should be mayor of. Yeah. He could do so much good there, but there's a question sitting in in here too. It's like, where did small town pride come from? Because it, it seemed you know, even with publishing working one and two and three years in advance, it hit at just the right time with such a powerful message. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's one of those things where it's like, wow, how lucky. And then you realize like, oh, not not I guess not lucky in the, the context of the world, but like how lucky that 
this is coming out at a time when it's needed most because there's always the, I, I mean, so I guess to answer your original question, the inspiration for Small Town Pride came, I want to say 2019, I think. There were, there was this rundown of, of like, I, it was a news article I saw that was like 12 small towns across America that have just host, hosted their first Pride Parade or Pride Festival. And so I went through that list and I would say a third of them, maybe more, were actually started because of the teens or preteens in their town. And I that I was just like, me like, whoa, that's so inspirational. Like that it's actually the kids and teens doing the work here. And actually when we start looking at like these book bands in general, a lot of the times that that things get overturned, it's because the teens actually stand up for for this and actually go to the school board meetings and fight and are not afraid to be out there and use their voice and be like incredible activists. And so I was like, okay, but what if I made the character not, not your average activist? Like he's, you know, he's, he's not really on the front lines of anything. Like he, he just, he just wants to like live his life and be happy. And so he kind of has that activism thrust upon him, which is kind of what happens to all of us. I mean, that's what happened to, to me as, as an author. It's like, okay, well, I didn't realize I was also an author slash activist, but of course I am because is what I do. And like, of course, I'm going to be an activist for all these causes. And my books themselves are activism. And But you just don't think about that when you're, you know, focusing on yourself and your own little journey. And so that was, that was fun to do with Small Town Pride. But leading up to Small Town Pride, the, the launch of Small Town Pride, I mean, Gravity Bus and uh, As Far As You'll Take Me were both banned in a few Texas school districts because of that. There was a list that was released of like, bad gay books or you know bad diverse books whatever and like then schools started pulling it and that's what kind of started this whole renaissance not not that there wasn't book banning a year before like not that it wasn't as bad but this was kind of the most public the first biggest public thing that came out of texas was that and then everyone started kind of doubling down on it in the school districts and started pulling everything on that list for review and then you know of course the same thing is happening in florida right now people are taking all their books off the shelves because they're so afraid that they're going to get sued by parents for you know or by the state for having a gay book on their shelves because they deliberately wrote the laws to be vague enough to scare people so it's just all these things are happening all across the country and suddenly my book was became so relevant and i wrote it and I remember thinking like is this is this going to have that relevance like is this going to make sense like I, that's why I made it in a small town of course like you know we were not saying it's Boston's first pride festival or anything like that we're saying it's you know it's it's, it's a tiny 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 village that you know you know they're if they got 20 people for it it would be a huge deal and so but like that doesn't make it any less impactful. So I was like, okay, there will still be impact to the story because of what he's doing with this town. And I was like, I want to make sure that the cover looks like small towns that I grew up in. I want to make sure that it reaches the right people. And then I suddenly realized that all these small towns are having the exact same conversations that the um, that go on in the book for Afterglow now. Like it's just all these things are just like they're all. Like their their book bannings happening. There are so many conversations about just like queer people existing at all, and so it ended up coming out at a really pivotal pivotal time. And I, the, you can't plan that because it is. Yeah, of course, I wrote it two years ago, but it came out in the Pride Month right after my books got banned for being gay. Like, so it was like, okay, wow, mm -hmm. this is what timing. <laughs>
in, in such an unfortunate way, as you noted. One of the things I liked about Small Town Pride and the angle that that young man took was so much that he wanted to feel safe in this town so he could stay there. Like he already saw, I think he was in eighth grade. Is that right? That he could already see a future that he wanted to have in that town. And he had to make it safe so that he could do that. It's like, first of all, it's disappointing that any kid has to deal with that on their own, of course, and not the adults. But, you know, good on him for even having that perspective on it. It wasn't to make it good in that moment, but to make it good on the law in the long term. Yeah, and so many of my books are about escaping, and that's that's the wonderful thing about not not being a debut anymore, not having only two books in the world. It's like you you get kind of pegged for what you've written, which makes sense. Obviously, what else are they going to base it on? However, I wanted to show stories that, like, yeah, queer teens need to escape their small, like, oppressive hometowns to like figure out who they are, like, and as far as it'll take me. However, I wanted to show that, like, okay, but also not all queer people want to leave their small town like I personally did. And, like, those voices are valid, too. And are they on the page? And where do we see them? And so that was that was a big goal for me in stepping into the middle grade arena. I was like, I want to kind of celebrate small. Like, this is, it's literally a celebration. The small town pride is literally a small celebration of small towns. And so that's what I wanted to do with it. And, yeah, it was it was much more meaningful than I thought it was going to be just because of the moment. I mean, of course it was meaningful to me because I put so much of myself in there, but like seeing it come out at that time was like, whoa. You mentioned being author and getting into the role of activist. And I just want to touch on for a moment that just a few days before we're talking right here at the end of January, mm-hmm. you were on social media offering safety tips to authors because of the step up of all these online attacks against queer middle grade and YA authors. What is it like for authors out there right now? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's sometimes it sometimes it's completely fine, but some days it does get very brutal. And you know, I've had friends who get targeted because they do a school visit, and so then the, there is a obscure Facebook group of, of of concerned parents of that school who like love to just cause drama or a very specific type of person. I've had friends be kind of attacked for, you know, having people go through every tweet they've ever sent to try to find something incriminating to be like, oh, look at this awful gay that is like corrupting our children. Like, why would they ever invite him? And like, it's just to cause problems like that. And also that was inspired. So so I've gotten plenty of hate. It's really, it's always really bad during Pride Month, which is the unfortunate thing about being a queer author is that, I really want to celebrate my books, but I get the most hate during Pride Month, like by far, like d- d- double that I do any other month of the year. And that's because there are just people who constantly troll through the hashtags to um, to yell at queer authors and to call them groomers and to do whatever whatever makes them happy. And like, I've had like weird Photoshop photos of myself sent to me. And like, it's just like, there's really uncomfortable, bad things happening online that like, there are times that I've had to tell my publisher, I'm not promoting anymore. I'm turning, I'm turning my account on like limited mode. And so I, so nothing happened to me that caused me to write this, but Bill Koningsberg actually just started getting attacks earlier this week. So some, some group had decided to that misinterpret something as like he was writing gay sex books for kindergartners, which like in no world makes sense. Like those words don't even make sense together. Like if you, it doesn't, it, he, there's no, there's no logic here. So this YA author 
who writes YA books for teens, not even sexually explicit YA books. I, I you know, no, nothing I've read from his would yeah. fall into that category anyway. Not at all. But anyway, so that that group is saying that he writes it for kindergartners. And then that got picked up by a local news story. And then he just like tons of comments that just say like, you know, F you groomer, like whatever. And, and he had to lock his account. And so when I saw that, I actually went through and I was like, uh, so part of my day job, I work with authors a lot and I, I help them with resources. So I work for Penguin Random House separately from this job. And so I work with the author development team. And I and part of what we do is we make sure authors have access to all the information they need. And sometimes that's marketing tips. Sometimes that's safety tips. Sometimes that is sales data, whatever it is, it's kind of all encompassed in, in my world there. And so I drew off of that and my own experiences, how I've been able to protect myself. And I was like, you know what, this I could I think I could throw together a pretty good eight tweet resource just so people can protect themselves before an attack comes because it's so much harder to do it while an attack is happening. And it's been happening more and more lately. Like I, I, I could tell you multiple examples in the past week and a half. Like it's, oh. it's, and of course it's going to be awful for all pride month again, because that, that is what happens. And so it's just, it's fatiguing. It's really sad on top of everything else. It's like, I don't want to, this is not what I want to deal with, but it's a part of that's a part of our job now and and that's a it's a really interesting side effect is you know you get to hear everyone's opinions of you and especially the negative ones and it's fine when they're critiquing the book i don't really care about that but when they're you know saying that you as a human shouldn't exist and you know you a list of words that i will not repeat that can be really taxing because you're like i'm just trying to write fun books for Mm -hmm. to make gay kids seen and i and i get those comments from queer teens all the time that like that shows that my books are getting out there in a way that like they're really it's reaching the right people however i know that if some of these people had their way that no teen would ever have access to this so it's just a it's a constant battle is there anything that readers can do to help keep writers safe I, honestly, I think the biggest thing is like if you have a local school board that you can throw support to, make sure you know what's happening happening locally. Like I think the biggest change would be if more people got invested in their local towns, events, made sure that their school libraries were diverse, made sure that there were no, you know, if there were no book bannings happening that, or, you know, if they, if there's a meeting that you see even in a nearby town where they're debating whether books should be pulled from the libraries and believe me, they happen everywhere. They happened in in my hometown, not that long ago. And a couple of my family members went to it, which was like really special, but these things, these things happen all the time, but like you if you are able to like stay abreast of these issues and know what's happening in your local community and what's being discussed, your presence there, I think is, is huge, especially if you're a parent, like if you're a parent of a student that they, they need as many people fighting back against the, the voices that are saying that queer people shouldn't exist. And even you being there, like if there's a queer teen in the audience, seeing bodies, <laughs> seeing people who are like, who are actually fighting for you, like that's kind of one of the more meaningful things. So yeah, and of course there are going to be donation places you can, like places you can donate books to, and there are pro- probably plenty of resources online if you want to help the fight. But I, I always think that we want to jump to big national things, or we want to like send a hundred thousand books to Texas, and we should do those things. However, we should also think what's happening in my backyard. Will we be the next 
don't say gay bill like you know like will we like mm-hmm. have the next experience like that because it doesn't matter what state you're in all states like you know will have book i think all states have banned books this year in in, in large ways so know what's happening so what you mentioned there, going local and finding those resources, I want to give a callback to our listeners if they did not catch episode 401, which is the rebroadcast that we did of a Faded Mates episode about book banning. Go back to that episode, find those show notes, listen to that if you haven't, because the interviews that were done in that episode focus on local, focus on things that are going oh, on. And there's a lot of great resources there. So definitely check that out if you haven't seen that in our backlist yet. Going back on a more upbeat subject, <laughs> back to the books that we love, we love recommendations. What have you been reading recently that our listeners should pick up? Okay, so recently I've read Cabal Noah Mitchell by Tobias Madden. It's a queer YA book from an author who's from, from Australia who just moved to New York, and I was able to be a part of his launch, which was really, uh, really fun. That one was a really fun story in that it combined elements of theater and gaming which you don't see together in books a lot but that was my to te- read this one <laughs> that, that was my teenage experience actually was was like spending most of my free time with internet strangers or at the community theater there was like th- those were my two safe places and so to see that kind of represented in a book i was just like kind of I was blown away that like, I was like, oh, it's not just me. <laughs> and one of the things we talked about, you know, I'm not trying to like spoil the plot or anything. But one of the things we talked about was actually how many people have come up to him and said that, oh, this is exactly like, you know, some things I was doing as a teen. And, and so apparently there are a lot more parallels to being a queer teen who's in, you know, gaming, into gaming and theater that then we realized. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that one up because that's high on my list of things to read. The cover drew me in first and then I read the blubber like, hmm, yes, I need to read this. Yeah, it's really good. I also, listen, I think I listened to the, I, I read part of it and I listened to the audiobook for part of it. The audiobook's really good too. So if you, if you prefer audio interpretations, that's, it's a good option too. Oh, that's good um, to know because you make good audiobooks for your books. Thank so. you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm so I'm so proud of all my audiobooks, and I would always recommend them, especially the full cast ones like Golden Boys and Afterglow and Other Gravity of Us. Looking into your future a bit, what do we have to look forward to after Afterglow? Yeah, I thankfully have some naps in my future, which is great because I'm finally off the two book a year schedule. I don't have to write and edit and do my day job and balance so much during a global pandemic. I sold these and then the pandemic happened and I was like, oh God, now I have to write them and also like write these queer joy stories. Well, it was, it was, it was a little rough, it was a little rough. And that, that was actually a part of why I think Afterglow and Golden Boys were pretty challenging for me. It was because it was hard to draw on so much inspiration for joy. But one of the, I think one of the greatest things to come out from this is that, you know, I, I feel like I'm, I've established myself in a way that, what comes next for me is I get to play around again and I get to act like a, I act like an author with zero contracts and zero deadlines. Cause I basically am that now. And that's kind of fun. And that's, that's exciting to me. So I do have a middle grade book that's coming out at the end of the year. It's, I think it's October. And so that's my second middle grade. It's not related to small town pride, but it deals, it deals with topics of grief and cooking and set in New York and is really fun. I, I'm excited to announce some of that at some point in my life. Of course, with any announcement, I have no idea when that will be, but so keep an eye out for that. 
so that's going to be in the fall. And then after that, I have nothing. I could retire and go into the woods and never be seen again. However, that's not my plan. So I will be spending <laughs> some time writing proposals and really getting to fall in love with more characters so that I can, so I can like kind of fall back in love with it. Not that I've fell out of love, but it's been a challenging few years just with the pandemic being creative. I, I think that's been hard for every author. So, and you know, now with a new baby, I'm kind of starting a whole new life. It feels like a new part of my life. So now I get to see how to balance it all. And, and I'm excited for it. That sounds exciting. And yeah, I can't wait to see what comes next because I've become such a fan over the last year. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. What's the best way to keep up with you online so that people can find the news when it comes out? Yeah. So my, my at is Stampy PK, which is just a college username that I've kept forever. So basically just go into your whatever platform and type Phil Stamper. There will be two that show up. One is the pro wrestler and one is me. I'm not the pro wrestler, but I feel like you should go ahead and follow us both because he's actually really cool. I met him on MySpace back in like when I was like 16 because I was oh, like, wow. we have the same name. <laughs> I, know, I was like 14 or whatever, DM DMing this like pro wrestler on on Facebook. But yeah, so follow both Phil Stampers. Always got to have a shout out for him. And yeah, I'm on I'm on I'm on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. I joined Hive for a little bit. If there's a platform out there, I'm probably on it. So <laughs> yeah. And then if you go to my website, philstamper.com, that's where I keep all my information. Future the, the tour should be over by the time this airs, but there should be future events happening. So keep an eye out for that. And yeah. If you if you want to find me, you can find me. Just Google. <laughs> And we'll link all of it in our show notes too. So yeah. you can find the social media, all the books we talked about and everything else. Phil, thank you so much for coming and talking about Afterglow. Can't wait to dig into that audiobook as soon as it drops and wish yes. you the most success with it. Thank you so much. This is so much fun. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, go to the show notes page for this episode at biggayfictionpodcast.com. The show notes page has links to everything that we've talked about in this episode. Thanks again to Phil for joining us. It was really great hearing all about the Golden Boys duology and Small Town Pride. His perspective on book bans and what's happening to authors on social media right now was very insightful as well. He mentioned what we've heard so often about rallying on a local level and being aware of what's happening where we live in terms of book banning and anti-queer laws. It's gotten really nasty in many states already this year. I've seen so much about Texas, Florida, Ohio, and other states that are primarily under Republican control. Please do what you can to be aware and support the freedom to read and the safety of queer people in your city and state. All right, I think that'll do it for now. Coming up on Monday, February 27th, Allie Theron is going to be joining us to talk about her new book, Liar City. Liar City is such an incredible paranormal mystery, and Allie's going to tell us all about it and what else we can expect in the new Sugar and Vice series. Jeff and I want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kinds of stories we all love, the big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Original theme music by Daryl Banner. 